Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast, episode number 37, James Dillon, Expertise on Trial. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang, from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. Our goal is to bring a virtual workshop to you every week throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is James Dillon. James is associate in law at Columbia Law School and is a PhD candidate in jurisprudence and social policy at the University of California, Berkeley. James's scholarship focuses on the legal construction of knowledge, particularly scientific expertise, and he brings a variety of interdisciplinary approaches to bear on this area. Our podcast today features James's new article, Expertise on Trial. In it, James draws on Scott Brewer's work on intellectual due process to argue that the legal system has a big problem when dealing with scientific and other specialized knowledge. Since legal actors are non-experts, they can't be relied on to come up with non-arbitrary decisions in specialized fields. To solve the problem, James argues for taking an institutional rather than an atomistic view of the legal system. He proposes the use of scientific adjuncts, basically magistrates with scientific expertise, to provide legal decisions with greater legitimacy. James, delighted to have you on Excited Utterance. Welcome. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's start with a biographical question. You have a background in philosophy and law. And as your field of specialization, you've basically chosen my favorite one, which is expert or scientific evidence. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got started in the field and what you find compelling about it? It was a little bit of a, a confluence of interests. I, as you said, I have this background in philosophy. I have a background in law. I've long had a personal interest in science and science policy and so on. And when I started my PhD at Berkeley, it occurred to me that I could turn all of these interests into a research agenda. I find this topic compelling both from a philosophical perspective of how is knowledge constructed? How do legal institutions interact with knowledge claims? So ultimately, it was just it became a very natural extension of work that I had previously done both in law I remember clerking, watching some expert witnesses come in, especially in one antitrust case that stands out and thinking to myself as a clerk, how in the world am I supposed to make sense of what these two competing highly credentialed economists have to say about damage causation, calculation of damages, that sort of thing. I felt like the least knowledgeable person in the room about these topics, and yet I was the one expected to at least help the judge make these decisions. That was one of several different influences that together pushed me to start thinking about these questions. I think that leads very nicely into my next question, which is to talk about the foundation of your article, which is about the problem of scientific evidence in the legal system. What, to your mind, is the essential problem there? I think you discussed this as a matter of experience that you felt that you didn't have the tools that were necessary to assess the two warring experts that you had. Is that roughly what's going on? 
I think that's a concise statement of the essential problem. The problem is we have generalist judges and juries who may be highly intelligent and highly conscientious, but nevertheless are put in a position of needing to make these credibility determinations or needing to find facts in highly complex technical scientific areas in which you have well-credentialed experts on both sides of the case saying often directly opposed things. And again, the least informed person in the room or the least expert person in the room is the person who's placed in the position of having to mediate this and make final determinations about what the truth is. And this gives rise to an obvious problem. How is a legal decision maker supposed to rationally and reliably make those judgments, make those decisions between, again, two well-credentialed experts who are just saying directly opposed things? There's something of a deep tension there. One of the premises of our legal system is that an average layperson is able to participate in the decision-making process, and it's part of a democratic value. Is there something undemocratic about saying that we need an expert, per se, doing these decisions or making these decisions? That is a very interesting question. And you know, one point that I don't get into so much in the current version of the paper, it was in some earlier versions, is exactly that point. There are a number of normative goals of what we might think of as the ideal court system. Democratic accountability is certainly one, transparency, efficiency, cost-effectiveness, capacity to deliver substantive justice, and so on. I would say that what I refer to as epistemic competence is one of many legitimate normative goals that need to be in the mix and that we need to be thinking about in terms of what the appropriate balance, say, of these normative goals are. I guess another point I would make is that the legal system has for quite a while now, going at least back to the 19th century, made extensive use of scientific and other forms of expert knowledge. And having made the decision to bring expert witnesses into the legal adjudicatory process, I think it's incumbent and useful to create a process in which that information and that expert knowledge can be incorporated as reliably and as rationally into reaching legal outcomes as possible. So one response, I think, to the democratic problem is, well, we've already made this decision that we're going to rely on scientific experts, that scientific perspectives, scientific expertise can contribute usefully to the resolution of legal claims. An obvious example would be causation in toxic tort cases, something like that. Having reached that decision, I think it's reasonable to say that the most just, the most reliable way to incorporate scientific expertise into the legal decision-making process is to make judicial engagement with scientific experts as rational, as reliable as it possibly can be. What about offering tools to the lay decision-maker? You talk about how Scott Brewer suggests a variety of proxy-type methods that the jury or even the judge might be able to use. What's insufficient about those? That's been part of the conversation for a long time now, going back at least to the 19th century when courts and academics started to engage with this problem of how should the legal system incorporate scientific expertise into decision-making. We've seen any number of proposals made about how we can facilitate courts, judges, jurors' engagement with understanding of scientific expertise. And certainly those 
efforts at mitigation, those efforts at facilitating judicial understanding, judicial engagement with scientific expert testimony have been useful, have produced a system that's better than it might otherwise be at dealing with some of this evidence. Brewer, in this very detailed account of the epistemological underpinnings of the problem of epistemic competence makes the point that the reason that will never be a full solution is that in order to reach an epistemically warranted judgment about a, a technical question involving scientific expertise, the legal decision maker needs to possess first order expertise herself in order to enter directly into the discussion, the debate between the two partisan witnesses. In other words, rather than relying on these second order characteristics, um, for example, the demeanor of the witnesses, their credentials, and so on, in order to make a rationally warranted judgment, the legal decision maker herself needs to possess some kind of expertise. And the problem with these attempts at mitigating the problem, which again have been effective, have gotten us some distance toward improving the situation, is that they can never close that gap completely. And Brewer makes that point very convincingly. The point is similarly made in other disciplines. For example, I talk a bit about recent work in the sociology of scientific knowledge, essentially making the same point that genuine expertise, expertise that doesn't have to rely on these second order proxy characteristics like demeanor, needs to come from a place of expert tacit knowledge. In other words, needs to be, the decision maker themselves need to be immersed in the epistemic community, the epistemic community of the relevant experts. Otherwise, there's inevitably this gap. Otherwise, inevitably, the decision maker is forced to fall back and rely upon these heuristic devices, these proxies for expertise that are never going to be as fully effective as the ability to engage at the first order with the substance of the expert disagreement itself. Here's my issue with that thesis, which is that I feel as if it puts the perfect as the enemy of the good. It seems to me that we do these kinds of things, we use these proxy methods to live our lives every day. So if I have car trouble, I don't know anything about my car, so I take it to the mechanic, and then I have to rely in some way on the information given to me to make a decision to repair the car. Why is that invalid, or why is it that the legal system needs to approach these problems differently than that? I don't think there's anything invalid about that. I think the question is, how reliable is the current process? To what degree does the existing system of relying on these second-order characteristics actually enable judges and juries to make reliable, warranted judgments. Brewer compares the existing system to a coin flip. His argument is that the existing system is essentially epistemically arbitrary. We have no reason to believe that the judgments made by judges and juries are in any way more reliable than simply choosing at random. And if that's right, then it seems to be the case that this isn't a situation that's comparable to taking a car to a mechanic and relying on the mechanic's expertise to solve the problem. It might be more analogous to say that you have 
two mechanics on both sides, one of whom is saying the problem is in the engine, the other of whom is saying it's in the brake line or something like that. And how are you as a non-mechanic supposed to decide who's right about that, supposed to be able to determine which of these two competing experts, both of whom have access to this esoteric knowledge that you yourself lack, is the more reliable one. To continue with that analogy, you might be able to look at, well, where were these two mechanics trained? How much experience do they have? Which one, when they're speaking to me, sounds as if they know what they're talking about more? Or which one is saying something that sort of comports with what I, as a mechanical layperson, think I know about how cars work? But the fundamental insight there is that none of those proxies for expertise are perfectly reliable or even necessarily very reliable. They often can lead us into mistaken judgments based on things like stereotypes based on our own prior beliefs, prejudices, preferences, motivated reasoning, that sort of thing. Which, again, I think is the fundamental insight of Brewer and some of these other commentators that have made this point, that reliable judgment necessarily needs to come from a place of first-order expertise itself. Much like reliable judgment about a car problem, if you have two mechanics who are saying radically different things about the nature of the problem, ultimately needs to come from a place of mechanical expertise. Otherwise, I, as a consumer of mechanic services, am not really in a place to make an informed or warranted judgment about who I should believe in this case. I've obviously given you a hard time about this, but let's assume you're right. And let's assume that as currently constructed, courts really don't have sufficient scientific knowledge to make reasonable or legitimate judgments. What should we do about this? That's a good question. The first step that I make in this paper, and I think the major contribution of the paper, is to point out that we know the solution to the problem of epistemic competence. Brewer was able to identify it. Others have been able to identify it, as I've said already. The fundamental problem is that legal decision makers lack substantive expertise in the scientific domains of expert testimony. So the obvious solution there is that legal decision makers should have substantive expertise in these scientific domains. That sounds simple and straightforward until you think of the fact that a generalist court over the course of a given year, much less the course of an entire judicial career, is going to be called upon to deal with innumerable different scientific domains, each one of which involves separate independent sources of expertise. And how then can an individual judge ever hope to develop sufficient expertise to engage at the first order substantive level with all of these different expert disputes that are going to come into the courtroom? Obviously, the judge can't. And this, I think, is where Brewer's solution to the problem fails to acknowledge the full scope of the problem. It would be wonderful if an individual judge were capable of developing or possessing first-order substantive expertise in all of the relevant scientific domains that come up in litigation. Unfortunately, what we're essentially describing there is something close to, if not omniscience, at least a level of expertise that no human mind can ever possess. Ultimately, the problem of epistemic competence is a problem of the finitude of human minds. Expertise is expensive. It's time-consuming. No individual human mind can ever hope to develop and possess expertise in all of the domains that come up or are relevant in litigation. But the 
problem with the way that this discussion has been framed up to this point is that it has been bound up in what I refer to as an atomized epistemological paradigm. And what I mean by that is simply that everyone who's been commenting on this problem up to this point has assumed that individual judges and jurors are the relevant epistemic agents of interest. In other words, the problem has been, how do we get this substantive expertise into the minds of judges and of jurors so as to enable them to engage again at the first order with the substance of these expert disagreements? The short answer is we can't. The short answer is no individual judge is ever going to be able to possess a substantive expertise in all of these different domains. So there are two potential solutions. One solution is to carve up courts into very, very narrowly specialized institutions. So we have a different court for civil engineering problems or a court for oncology problems and so on, and try to staff every one of those very thinly sliced specialized institutions with judges and decision makers who do possess substantive expertise. That would be very expensive. I don't think it would be practical in terms of finding enough experts to staff these institutions. And even if we could, I doubt that the institutions could be thinly enough sliced that even then individual decision makers would actually possess substantive expertise in every single domain that even a very narrowly focused specialized institution would have to engage with. So the other solution to the problem. The other way to go, which is what I propose, is that we need to rethink our epistemological paradigm a little bit. We need to rethink this assumption that individual judges or individual jurors are the epistemic agents in which we should be interested here. And I think the major contribution of this paper is the argument that we need to reconceive of the epistemic agent of interest, not as being the individual judge, not as being individual jurors, but rather the court as an institution, the court as a kind of collective epistemic agent that is itself capable of possessing knowledge, possessing expertise. At which point the question becomes, how then do we incorporate substantive scientific expertise, not into the mind of an individual judge, but rather into the collective epistemic agent of the court as an institution. And I look at recent work in social epistemology that traces some of the contours of collective or institutional knowledge, and I try to offer a way of thinking about how we might go about that process of creating a court as an institutional epistemic agent that possesses both substantive scientific expertise as well as legal expertise and legal authority so as to satisfy the criteria of what Brewer calls the two-hat solution, an institution or a legal decision maker that, again, possesses both substantive expertise and legal authority and can make these decisions in a reliable and warranted way. Explain to me how your solution, which involves the effectively special master, or this person with specialization deputized by the court, how that differs from a court-appointed expert solution to the problem. I think the major difference is that what I call the scientific adjunct will have or would have some measure of direct decision-making authority. That, I think, is the key piece that's required by these classical epistemological accounts of the problem of 
epistemic competence. What's needed is for the decision maker herself to possess substantive expertise. And that's the difference between a special master and a scientific adjunct. In other words, the proposal that I set out at the end of the paper is essentially to create a new office staffed by officers that I call scientific adjuncts. These would be individuals with substantive expertise. I think I say at least a master of science degree, although we could debate whether a PhD would be necessary or something like that. But substantive expertise is measured, you know, in some way in specific scientific domains. And what I propose is that these adjuncts would be called upon to make legal decisions would be judicial officers who themselves have authority in cases relevant to their expertise to decide questions like the qualification of the partisan expert witnesses, to decide motions under Rule 702 and Daubert to exclude expert proposed expert testimony as unreliable, and would also have the opportunity at trial to opine, to offer their own view on the, the credibility and the reliability of the testimony of the partisan experts brought forth by either side. In other words, the, the major difference between the scientific adjunct, as I've conceived it, and a special master or a magistrate judge or some other sort of ancillary officer is not subordinate to the generalist district court judge within the domain of scientific expertise. Final question for you. Where should the work in this area go from here? And maybe these are things that you plan to work on in the future or things that you might like other people to work on as well? One point that I don't spend a lot of time on in this paper, but that you've already brought up, is the fact that epistemic competence is one of many potentially significant values in the optimal or normatively ideal legal system. And I don't want to take the position that it's necessarily a value that should be maximized or enhanced above all others. I think there's a much broader normative conversation that needs to take place about the value we place on expertise vis-a-vis -vis these other values. I don't think that conversation has taken place yet to the extent it should, partly because we've yet to have a an epistemically informed conversation about what it would take to create an institution that's capable of evaluating and assessing scientific expertise in a rational and reliable way. What would an institution look like that actually does satisfy these criteria that have been set forth in previous works in classical epistemology and sociology of scientific knowledge and so on of what epistemically warranted decision making or epistemically warranted judgments involving scientific expertise would actually look like? Once we have a sense of what that might look like, we can then start to have conversations about normative trade-offs, about to what degree do we want to emphasize or maximize this value value versus other values, which again, we've already talked about, things like democratic accountability, things like cost, things like preservation of the adversarial system. The proposal that I make, although I, in crafting the specifics of the scientific adjunct proposal, I tried to preserve as much of the existing common law adversarial model as possible, it's still something of a departure. And I'll be the first to acknowledge that we should think carefully before implementing radical changes to this adversarial model that has served us, if not perfectly, at least reasonably well for some time now. Again, that's a broader conversation that needs to happen, and it's one that I by no means claim to have ended, but I'm, I'm trying to contribute to starting, at least. Well, James, thanks for taking the time to be on the podcast. I've, of course, spent a lot of time thinking about these issues over the years, and it was fun to get a chance to talk broadly about them with you. Great having you on the show. 
<laughs> Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. The problem of the so-called battle of the experts is, of course, practically timeless. Learned Hand, writing a century ago, summarized the problem well, and here I quote from his 1901 Harvard Law Review article. But how can the jury judge between two statements each founded upon an experience confessedly foreign in kind to their own? It is just because they are incompetent for such a task that the expert is necessary at all. James, in his article, takes on this bedeviling problem and comes up with an interesting solution. Use scientific adjuncts who have both epistemic competence and decision-making authority in their respective spheres. It, like any solution in this area, is a tough sell, but a worthwhile idea that gives clarity to some of the issues. It solves the issue of the ignorant decision-maker. At the same time, it necessarily affects the democratic balance in the legal system and moves away from the value of generalist judges and arguably adversarialism. After our interview, James and I somewhat hashed out our different approaches to this tough issue. His approach is to start with the ideal and work towards some practical implementation, whereas my own is to start with how we currently muddle through in practice and try to make it more ideal. Either way, I think he and I are moving toward the same middle ground, just from opposite sides of the spectrum. James is on the job market this fall, so let me make a pitch. If you're looking for a bright, young, promising evidence scholar, you should give him a close look. I think we're all going to enjoy having him as a new colleague in our community. That does it for this week's episode of Excited Utterance. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. The associate producers are Alex Nunn and Margot Wilkinson-Smith, and the production editor is Carson Smith. Additional production assistance is provided by Aaron Parr Carranza, and music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join me again next week when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof. Thank you.